Hey, hey, Mo, you are listening to Gilbert Gottfried's colossal, terrific podcast. <laughs> Why don't you say Mammy? <laughs> <laughs> This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And our guests this week are one, Jeff Abraham is one of America's foremost comedy historians and a go-to pop culture expert for TV producers documentary filmmakers and authors. As a senior account executive at Jonas Public Relations, he's repped some of the top names in comedy, including Andrew Dice Clay, Steve Harvey, George Lopez, Bill Maher, and for the last 11 years of his life, George Carlin. He's also the owner and curator of the largest comedy album archive in Hollywood. That's for sure. And has served as a consultant on documentaries and TV specials, including Make Em Laugh for PBS, Comedy Central's 100 Greatest Stand-Ups of All Time, Cinemax, Let Me In, I have... Let me in, I hear laughter. A salute to the Friars Club and Encore's method in the madness of Jerry Lewis. He is also on the board of Close. the National <laughs> Com- Method to the madness, but good enough. Ah, <laughs> whatever. It's Jerry Lewis. Yeah. And National Comedy Center... It's the, he's on the board of the National, <laughs> National Comedy <laughs> Floygish and Ivanbottle and is the author of an upcoming authorized biography of the Ritz Brothers. And he was once reamed out by Paul Anka. <laughs> Bert Kearns is an award-winning producer, director, writer, journalist, and author of the controversial book Tabloid Baby about his role in the development of tabloid television. He's written and produced the non-fiction series Conspiracy Theory with Jesse Ventura, all the president's movies with Martin Sheen, and the secret history of rock and roll with Gene Simmons. He's also produced the comedy Hi There and the documentaries Death of a Beetle and Bin Laden's Escape. <laughs> that was a comedy. And, and, I missed that one. And I give up. <laughs> and, fuck it, I want to go home. <laughs>
<laughs> and and directed and produced the non-fiction films The Chris Montez Story Basketball Man and the Those award- are two different projects. Ah, fuck it all. <laughs> Just get me out of here, please. <laughs> the mo- Don't die on us. The seventh python. <laughs> See, if I would have died on you before, I could have gotten in the book. See, so, it's never so too late. My timing is The night just, is young. He worked with everyone from Burt Reynolds to Cher to Robert Duvall, and he was once cursed out by Buddy Hackett. <laughs> Their brand new book is called The Show Won't Go On. The most shocking, bizarre, and historic deaths of performers on stage. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff Abraham and Bert Kearns. Wow. Found Thank dead you. in their West Hollywood apartment. <laughs> yeah, that's the one that they like. They they wanted you to add the found dead in their yes, West Hollywood. Yes. <laughs> Welcome, boys. Oh, Thank great, you. Great to be here. First of all, thank you, Gilbert, for giving us a quote for the book. We appreciate that. Thank you so much. You gave them a quote for the book. Yes. I don't remember what it was, but I'm sure it was good. I'm going to read We know that nobody knows what it's like to die on stage like Gilbert. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this this book uh, definitely teaches you one thing, and that's that if you're Desperately in the moment, in need of medical help, <laughs> being on stage is the worst place because everyone's going to start laughing and applauding when you're gasping for your last breath. That's true. That happens a lot, especially the, the poor woman who dropped dead after singing, please don't talk about me when I'm gone. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> That's a good one. Well, what is the yeah. what was the the Cavett thing uh, when 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 Rodale was when when Dick Cavett uh, realized that our pal Dick Cavett realized Rodale was in trouble? He purposely did not say, "Is there a doctor in the house?" No, because right, it, yeah, there was that pregnant pause. He was thinking, "If I say this, the entire audience will think it's a joke." So he <laughs> actually had to think for a second. What should I say? It, it's it was tragic beyond words. Yeah. Yeah, the book is fascinating for so many. Gilbert and I were discussing it, and we were just talking about before you guys sat down. The we were we were talking about both the guy that was buried in cement, jo, oh. what, what was amazing it? Joe, the amazing Joe, and we Gilbert is fascinated by the one armed lion tamer. Yeah, you figure <laughs> if you're a one armed lion tamer, isn't it pretty much time to quit? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and don't get drunk before you walk in out of the lions. Yes. He, he did as well. Yes, I yeah, in the book they say that the guy was scared. He already had an arm bitten off by a lion. And and there was one lion that he couldn't really fully tame. It was really a, an angry lion. And he decided the best thing to do to calm his nerves would be to get drunk before trying to tame wild animals. You, you, you guys want to field that one and, 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 and give our listeners a little quick overview? Well, the, it's the epitome. It's the show must go on. These performers have all said, I would rather die on stage than in bed. You know, Carl Walenda said, I would rather die in the wire. You know, so here's a guy wish. who 
So a guy who loses a one arm, he says, I'm not going to quit. I'm a lion tamer. That's what I do, you know? So, <laughs> that's what he did. <laughs> he did. That's, so there's, go ahead. And Bert. it was quite a show because I think there were seven lions uh, in, in <laughs> the cage with him. And each one of them took a bite. And then once they got some of the lions off, the other ones went back and had some more. All in front of a, an audience of children and families, which is great. And I heard it. I think it was like one lion who was the one to break the ice. And he well, took all, yeah, a bite out of him. Right. And then yeah. the other started thinking, hey, we're lions. We should be doing this. And they there all was, started eating them. Yeah, there was one lion that was very polite, took a bite that went back to where he was sitting. And then when they thought it was all over, he went back and finished them <laughs> off. That, that was the story that stayed with me and haunted me through the night. But you guys broke this thing down. You decided you wanted to do... Uh, how did you first tackle the book? I mean, you decided to do well, uh, what some happened? circuses and then you some sta uh, stage performers and, and even people who died on radio. Right. <laughs> well, let me, well, let me back up. The idea came 15 years ago this August. I went to see an Elvis impersonator. My friends were the opening act. And the gentleman who didn't coin the phrase, but you've heard him hundreds of times on Elvis recordings, Al Devarin said, ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has left the building. Oh, yeah. He was in the lobby talking with friends and fans, and they said, Al, when are you going to write a book? You've done it all. You had an amazing career. And he goes, you know what? I have time. I'll get to it, whatever. That was Saturday night. Monday morning, I'm watching the news. They reported he had just he was killed in a car accident Sunday morning. I said, wait, I was just with him, you know, less than 48 hours ago. And you realize, you know, life is fleeting. And you think about how many people have died on stage. You know, Elvis died the day before a tour. Hank Williams died between a show. And we knew about Dick Sean. Sure. And this man next to me said, and I came up with this title, the show won't go on. And he said, well, put your money where your mouth is. Write the book. And we were going to do all these great stories of people who dropped dead, you know, during a rehearsal and Cary Grant dropped dead. But Bert says, you know what? I think if we just limit it to guys who or, or people who died on stage, we may have enough. We didn't realize how many people died literally on stage yeah, going back. Yeah. Yeah, that you took know, about a, that took I, about a year. I have to tell you before I forget, <laughs> I was once on stage. This was about I don't know two three years ago. I think I was on stage, and in the middle of a bit, a guy did scream out, "Is there a doctor in the house?" <laughs> And and I thought, and I started laughing because I thought this is like a vaudeville routine, you know. If there a doctor in the house, and and some woman died while you were performing. Yes, yeah. yes. You were in the middle of a Norman Fell yes. bit, and yeah. that was the, the last the last thing she heard was Joyce Dewitt was a consummate yeah. professional. <laughs> wow, wow. But, but there are, there's there's a surprising number of people who've died on stage. We we started out again, as Jeff said, we started by getting people like Harry Chapin, who died on the way to a show, Leonard sure. Skinner, who died on the way back from a show. It turned out that there were so many, it was just unwieldy. So we narrowed it down to people who died. Literally. literally. Yeah. yeah. So we narrowed it down to people who died in front of a camera, people who died on, on a stage in a circus tent. And then there were still too many. So we had to get rid of movie stars and TV stars and people who died in rehearsals. 
and narrowed it down finally to just people who died in front of an audience, whether it's an audience in a theater, in an arena, or on social media now. We have people, we have not people that commit suicide on social media, but performers, like the guy who had, who, who took uh, all of his social media followers on a, on a wingsuit flight off a mountain. <laughs> and he was one of the first to do oh my it. God. <laughs> and he, he flew about 20 feet before he dropped. And what you, what you heard at the end was just him hitting. You heard a scream, oh. him, <laughs> him oh, hitting. Man. And then you started hearing the sound of cows. Mm. <laughs> mm. Because he fell in a field and all these cows came over to see what just dropped <laughs> in the middle of their field. So I was talking about how you guys decided to categorize the material. So it was just that was that was what you narrowed it down to. Anybody that died in front of an audience, be it a, on radio, uh, conducting an orchestra in a circus tent. In the case of Walenda, he was on the high wire, right? And not and not athletes. We 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 couldn't fit in. Sure, you know, boxers or boxers. Bo- people people that go into a um, stunt into, into an arena knowing that that the death might be a possibility. Except for the circus performers, because they consider themselves to be performers and not athletes. Didn't, I mean, and she didn't die on stage, but I think she died immediately after. I think, didn't Carmen Miranda, I think she was doing like the Jimmy Durante. Jimmy Durante sh- yeah, right. she had a heart attack while performing on the Jimmy Durante show and then went home to Beverly Hills where she hosted a party. I believe. And then her husband found her, I think, the next morning in the hallway. Oh, geez. How did you know that, Gilbert? Yeah, no, that one I knew. <laughs> He's working on a sequel. You know, and th- and That's that- one of the things we're finding are, 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 the, are the misconceptions people have. Like, people think Irene Ryan died on stage or, you know, Frank Sutton, Sergeant Carter. Yes. Sar- Sergeant Carter was in his dressing room and he, he dropped dead before he went out on stage. Yes, I found that on your website. <laughs> <laughs> what I had, doing further reading. We we were we had very strict rules. We're like sick Lee, man, Bert. We had very strict rules and criteria. Like Lee Morgan, we said another five feet, he would have been he would have made the book. Yeah, this is a, this is a jazz uh, a jazz trumpeter who was walking toward the stage when his uh, common law wife shot him in the back. His band was on the stage. He didn't quite make it, so he didn't make the book. Wow. So now, Common Miranda had a heart attack on the show. Yes, yes, while yeah. dancing. Yeah, yeah. I think Caesar Romero was somehow involved. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how. We love that you guys are attracted to the dark side of show business, like us. You're, you, you obviously you listen to this show, and you're also perfect for it. Why well, is why is orchestra conductor the 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 highest? Why does that come with the highest <laughs> risk? Yeah, orchestra conductor is probably the most risky occupation and show business yeah, that struck and, pro- me. and the reason well to, to give it away they're all usually between the ages of 50 and 80 uh they travel a lot they, they they travel between cities to conduct for various orchestras they don't eat well they eat a lot of airplane food uh it's very high stress getting these orchestras together in time for the show and then once they get up on the podium the adrenaline. The adrenaline starts going, and then the, 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 conduct, the, the music starts getting a little bit faster, and they're conducting harder, and then they plots. It's funny, because I remember many years ago, someone saying that orchestra conductors are among the most in-shape people, because they're giving <laughs> themselves a workout every, every day. They, you know, it's like waving their arms. It's like, you know, it's like a robot size. 
But I guess never. it's not working. It's not working. No, <laughs> it might be. It might be too much exercise for some of these people. Yeah. What What about what? And we jump around here too, because we yeah. G- Gilbert and I are fascinated by the magicians, which we'll get to. But what What about a Gilbert favorite? What about Joey Ross? Well, Joey Ross. <laughs> and how Joey did he not Ross, die in a hooker? He He was putting on a show in his apartment complex in in Burbank. Uh, when he, in the middle of the show, he stopped, he sat down on the side of the stage, realized he was having a heart attack and died. And the person who put on the show only paid his wife half the money because he only did half a show. He was supposed to, he was supposed to be paid a hundred dollars and he said, here's 50. He didn't complete it. <laughs> and that was, that's happened to several people. That happened to the, our jazz man, Warren Marsh as well. Well, that was the whole point of the book is to come. I always always say to Bert, what's the button? Because otherwise, and he had a heart attack and he had a heart attack. And I think the epitome of that is to find is the story that tells it best is the first entry is Jane Little, this woman who was about four foot eleven. Oh, yeah, that's a good good one. She had the she was about the size of June Foray. She had the. Guinness Book of World Records for the longest tenure in an orchestra. Comes and the largest b- instrument she played. Right. Mm. Was, the instrument was bigger than her. She comes back after ill health and drops dead, unfortunately, during the Encore show. And as Bert said, if you wrote this in a movie, they would say, no way, take it out. Nobody's going to believe it. She dropped dead while she's playing. There's no business like show business. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> And there was a horrible, not like there was only one horrible thing. That that woman, or the girl, actually, she was a dancer and she was set on fire. Yes. That goes back to the 1800s. That's that's an early one where her, where her, her flimsy nightgown or flimsy gown caught on one of the stage lights. And as she kept dancing and running around in circles, it, the, the flames just got higher. And then it turned out that other dancers learned there was a flame retardant they could put on their costume so that wouldn't happen again. But none of them would do it because the costumes look better without it. And and wasn't it like the manager, you know, ran up on stage and said, everything's fine. They you say know. that a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, let's now, ask. Oh, they, they say that the, quite the, often. The, the thing with the girl dancer that yeah. gave me a chill is when the mother, her mother, was in the audience to make yep. matters worse, and and that the mother went up and said something to her while she was dying, and then the daughter answered. Remember this? Yep. Yeah, and it, it it there are so many instances, unfortunately, where people have literally died in, in front of their children or their spouses. It's and the one thing we wanted to do was to celebrate these performers' lives and really not to make fun of their tragic end endings you know but it is i mean some of them are are almost cartoonish the way they died you know when when tommy cooper you know drops dead on stage you know the audience is laughing and and then quickly people go wait that's not in his act the british comedian tommy cooper yeah yeah i mean people go wait that's a new bit you know when dick sean died his son was the stage manager and knew the act and dick dropped to his feet and he goes he doesn't do that in the show normally, you know? I mean, it's literally. Uh, yeah, Dick Sean is probably like one of the most famous instances oh, but of somebody Can I dying just, before you go on to yeah. Dick Sean, yeah. Yeah. I heard with the girl who died, you know, on fire, mm-hmm. 
that the mother ran up to her afterwards crying hysterically. And she said, had I been in the, the balcony seat, I could have thrown a cloak on you and put the fire out. And the girl, her dying words were, uh, yes, you could have. Yep. And I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> Thanks for that. How thanks a lot. Fuck did the mother live with that as the daughter's last words? Yeah, because usually the mother was in the wings waiting, and the mother could have just thrown her cloak on her and saved her. There's a couple. Yeah, there is a there is a couple of stories. There are a couple of stories like that. I mean, Sean's son is one of them, which is one of the sadder things in the book. And I knew all for years that Dick Sean died on stage, but I didn't know the details. Yeah, as Jeff I mean, was that, alluding to, I also I mean, didn't, I didn't know he tried out for Major League Baseball. I didn't know he was a ball player. That was his original dream. Dick Sean did not know that base player uh, to be a baseball player. Yeah, I mean, Dick Sean's one man show, the second greatest entertainer in the world, started out. He started every show by lying down on the stage underneath newspapers, totally still, not moving at all. And when the audience came in and filed into the theater. They didn't realize he was on the stage, and then the lights would go down, and he'd come up from the from the uh, underneath the newspapers. When it came time for intermission, he'd say, "I'm going to take a nap," and he'd fall down and lay down on the stage through the entire intermission, and then get up for the second part of the show. So here he is; he's he's at the University of San Diego playing in the auditorium, and he's riffing. He's doing one of one of his more surreal bits, and he says, "Let's pretend that there's been a nuclear war, and everyone." In, in the country is killed except the people in this theater and I will be your leader. And then he fell and everybody kind of waited. The stagehands knew that he falls down on the stage once in a while. The son who was in the back of the theater again, realized he doesn't usually fall like that. It doesn't hit his head that way. So he, he calls down uh, through the, uh, through the headphone to the stage manager and says, go out and check him, see if he's all right. So the stage manager walks out. He goes, I think, I don't know. Is, I can't tell if he's breathing or not. <laughs> <laughs> he walks back. And so then then suddenly uh, Dick Sean's son realized what was going on and ran out to try to save his father. And it was too late. But he was out. And then the worst part was people in the theater, some of them asked for their money back. Oh, they said, this is man. Right. We, okay, we haven't seen the whole <laughs> show here. Oh, my God. Ah. While he was on the stage. And th- in this case, they said, is there a doctor in the house? And there were about 40 doctors in the house because it was right next to the hospital. I guess San Diego has a um, the university there has a mm-hmm. teaching hospital, so a lot of doctors are there trying to save him. But and then out work. in the lobby comes his cousin, who is a cardiologist. Ah, oh. who they they didn't need to do an autopsy; they just realized right there and then he had died. Wow, was, that, that's a sad one. Well, the sad one is also it's been what thirty five years, and you know when we talk to Adam Sean, his son. He still cries about it. It's of not, course. you know, it's not a joke. And you say to somebody, you know, well, do you get any, you know, do you, do you get any kind of relief or comfort in the fact that he died doing what he loved? It's like, well, a little bit, but I would rather have him around for another 20 years. Well, and of that's course, where, that's know, the question they, that was asked to Bob Einstein yes. about park yeah. your carcass. Yeah. yeah. They, the, great, uh, the, great, the greatest answer. And where Albert's answer is different. Albert says, isn't it amazing? He finished the act. He didn't die going to the theater. He didn't die in the middle. He waited until he finished. 
He sat down, mm-hmm. and if you've heard the recording, you you've never heard laughter like that. Desi yeah. Arnaz is screaming. People are pounding tables. No pun intended, Gilbert. He killed, and literally seconds later. Yeah, Bob Einstein said, someone said, isn't it great your father died doing what he loved? And Bob Einstein (laughs) said to the guy, he goes, what does your mother do? And uh, he said, she's a housewife. And he said, let's go over to her house right now. I'll take out a gun and blow her fucking brains out, <laughs> and we can say she died doing what she loved. <laughs> While she was washing the yeah. dishes. <laughs> Talk a little bit about that night and about Park Your Carcass. Uh, it was at the Hilton, right? It uh, was at the Beverly Friday. Hilton. Yeah, yeah, it was a fr- an L.A. Friars event. It rose for Lucy and Desi. A testimonial dinner, if we may oh, be correct. Oh, a testimonial dinner. Okay, forgive me. So there, so there were men and women there. It, um, Big names, Byrne and, uh, Burns and Burl and Ed Wynn. And Jessel, Jessel? Um, your, your favorite was the MC Sammy and Art Linkletter, Tony Martin, um, Danny Thomas, and Sammy Davis Jr. were waiting to go on, but they um, unfortunately got bumped <laughs> due to unfortunate <laughs> circumstances. And Harry Parky Carcass Einstein had this bit where he would just take what was logical and then twist it around like he said the friars is a very exclusive club you must be um pledged by two people in good standing one of them by chico marx you know he would love to do those little switches and he had been doing it for the last year or so at various roasts i mean testimonial dinners with great success he had become a favorite he had been in ill health for years before he had did a TV movie earlier that year, and we thought we would see more of them, but the old ticker gave out. And it was that thing, is there a doctor in the house? Yeah. And the great story is, so Milton Berle gets up to calm the audience, and he goes to Tony Martin. Tony, sing a song. And Tony sings, there's no tomorrow. How do you how do you write that? Yeah. And yeah. years later, Leonard Malton told me um, Milton Berle and Art Linkletter were doing a radio show, and they were in the hall, and they both looked at each other, and they go, "I'll never forget that night." He goes, "Neither will I." And I mean, that's Schmuck Tony Martin. <laughs> <laughs> what, what about Al Kelly, which happened at the New York Friars, the master of the double talk? That was a, that was well, I don't like to say it was a hilarious one, but yeah, that was one where um, old Al came out, did his his double talk routine, mm-hmm. and then he uh, went back on his way back to the to his uh, table. He went out, and they carried him out to the round the world bar. There were doctors in the house, of course, and they pronounced him dead on the bar. This is on Fifty Fifth Street in the monastery. Yeah, yeah in the monastery. Yeah, you know yeah. that bar? It's the, it's the yeah. Billy Crystal bar yeah. now, Gilbert. They so just absolutely. laid him out on the bar. He he! They did his last rites on the bar. I've eaten pizza goldfish on that bar. Wow! <laughs> we will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast right after this. That's what you say. <laughs> hum hum hum! They're Gilbert and Frank. We love Gilbert and Frank. We worship Gilbert and Frank. Now back to Gil and Frank. 
Now, before we forget the stuff I'm most interested Uh in, and Frank, (laughs) is first with you, Jeff. Yes. Uh, Tell us about you and Paul Hanka. We our our firm had the pr- privilege of representing Paul in about 2007. He had was doing a follow up CD to Rock Swings called Classic Songs My Way, where he would take rock songs and do it in the Sinatra style. And it was a you know a very good album. The first album got the New York Times and he was on Letterman. But you don't strike lightning twice, so it was it was getting hard to get press. Ironically, at the same time, we were working with Wayne Newton when he was on Dancing with the Stars. And all these singers hate each other. They're all jealous. You know, why is Tom Jones doing this? Why is Tony Bennett on the MTV Awards? So my boss was on an airplane with Paul's either wife or girlfriend. I'm trying to remember the relationship. And somehow she let it slip. We're working with Paul with Wayne Newton. So Wayne call so Paul calls the office. I answer the phone. He goes, What's this I hear? You represent Wayne Newton. And I'm doing my Jackie Gleason, hum the hum and this the longest pause, Gilbert, in your life. I don't what do I say? And he goes, I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> he goes, and i I remember this to this day. The fucker can't sing. Now America will see that he can't dance. <laughs> I go, okay, okay, okay. Why do you right, take Paul? it out on you, Jeff? Because I was the guy that answered the phone. He goes like, I'm Paul Anka. How dare you represent that guy who can't sing Wayne Newton? You just, you know, you know, he's the guy. How dare you represent somebody else? I know comics are competitive, but it's great to know that singers are competitive the same way that they, oh, they, they piss they, on each other. And, you know, the, you know, he was, I think we're about the same size, five foot four, you know, and you, you know, you're very Napoleonic. He's the first guy I ever saw with a black American express card. You know, he would walk into Chasen's and everybody knew him, but you know, he was very proud of the fact in oceans 13, Al Pacino oh, yeah. <laughs> is doing his speech from the famous recording of him yeah, on the bus I, with I, yelling right. at the man, but he was proud I of that. Slice like a fucking hammer. Exactly. And he said, you know what? I was absolutely right. Those band members were terrible. It's my ass on the line. You know, he was proud of oh, that. Oh, he stands fact. by it. That absolutely. He is, he is not contrite about the guys get shirts. Bert, That's what a, the fucking way, way it, it is. is. <laughs> <laughs> Bert, what about you and the buddy story you told me over the phone, as long as we're doing the stories from the intros? <laughs> <laughs> well, I worked with, with Peter Brennan. At, at a current affair. He's the man who invented a current affair. Uh-huh. And then later, Peter went on to invent Judge Judy. So he had great success with the, with the courtroom show. Uh, around 1999, we had the idea, uh, let's do a comedy courtroom show. So we thought, you know, Pigbeat Markham was dead. Uh, we tried <laughs> oh, no. Joan Rivers. We, we, Here come the judge. No Pigmeat. Here come the judge. <laughs> so through through my attorney uh, from the Friars Club, uh, Paul Sherman was was my attorney. He represented Buddy Hackett and arranged for us to meet Buddy Hackett to see if Buddy Hackett wanted to do the show. So so Peter and I and my wife Allison um, had a meeting at Buddy Hackett's house at one one in the afternoon in the middle of the week. We arrived at his house, this beautiful uh, one story house in the flats of Beverly Hills, uh, giant house. But Buddy's wife had turned every room in the house and including 
the, the sunken tennis court, which we'd all seen pictures of Buddy Hackett and Johnny Carson and Alan King playing tennis. Uh-huh. She turned the entire place into a cat sanctuary. <laughs> oh, uh, Cats lived in every room. There were oh. cat cages and cat hangers. And Buddy had one room in the house, sort of a wing, a, a large rec room that was his. So we went into the rec room and it contained a pool table, a bar, a display case for his uh, golf clubs, a display case for his guns. And he had he a lot of guns. guns. And every uh, shutter on every window was closed. So it was pitch black. It could have been midnight, but it was one o'clock in the afternoon in the middle of the summer. Uh, Buddy took out uh, the drinks and he made us lime Rickies. And we started drinking and spent about three hours. Didn't mention the show once. <laughs> he, uh, he did shtick for us. He read us his poetry. He, um, he read us the letter that he wrote to Bill Cosby when his son Ennis died. He wept while he read the letter to us. He gave us the full Buddy Hackett. And then at one point, he just stopped and said, I won't work with any assholes. I want my son Sandy involved. And he told us the amount of money he wanted per episode. And then we kept drinking. And he said, you know, why don't we just meet, you know, fuck the show. Let's just meet here once a week and drink. So we said, you know, thanks, buddy. We left. About three weeks went by maybe a little bit more four weeks we're waiting to get some traction arrange the meetings for the show and finally we have some meetings set up for the buddy hackett comedy courtroom show so i call buddy and i say you know hello i'm like buddy bert kearns if you remember me we were, at, we were at your house for the for the uh to do this comedy courtroom show he's like no leave me alone no no buddy this is we had the meeting you know you wanted this amount of money we're gonna we're gonna go out and pitch it now now, fuck you. I don't want to do it. Just leave me alone. Goodbye. And uh, buddy, this is, this is the real thing. We're going to actually, we're going to do a show. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> and then he hung up the phone. <laughs> actually, Gilbert, you could, if you could play Buddy Hack, I think you could do it better. You could yeah. do it, Buddy Hack. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> it turned out that, that Buddy had signed on to that the Jay Moore show action. Oh, action, yeah. So his, his career. Yeah, yeah. It's nice it to meet your heroes, isn't us. it, guys? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, back to the book for one thing. I've known yeah. Bob Greenberg about 50 years, and I had no idea that he was Al Kelly's, what, <laughs> grand, grand-nephew? Al- yeah, Al Kelly's like... <laughs> Honorary grandnephew or something. Yeah, I've known Bob forever. You know Bob yeah. Greenberg. Yeah. We all know yes, Bob Greenberg. Yes. How is that possible? Well, if anyone was, it would be him. Hey, he <laughs> yeah. lost 33 pounds on a diet just recently I saw on yeah, Facebook. he's a good but guy. <laughs> there's a perfect example. You know, Bob was, was, would always tell the story. He didn't even know what uh, Friars event it was at. We had to tell him it was one for Joey Lewis. Hilarious. He thought it was for, something else, for somebody else. Okay. Now, so, on to the magicians, which is where Gilbert wanted to go. <laughs> Tell us about Washington Irving Bishop, because <laughs> we both love this one. Well, Washington Irving Bishop was a mentalist. He did. He was able. That's funny already. <laughs> he was able to like drive a, a horse, a horse a carriage through the streets while he was blindfolded. He was able to to find people in the audience who had a, a coin in their pocket. Um, a modern day Kreskin. Uh huh. But to get in, in, into the act, he did a lot of cocaine, a lot of drugs, a lot of alcohol. And he would go into these conniption fits on stage and then drop to the stage and go into this very death-like coma. And everybody that he worked with and everybody he worked for knew that if he fell out on the stage and appeared to be dead, he wasn't really dead. He was in this, he was in this trance-like state. 
Um, so he actually kept a little note in his pocket, in his front pocket that said, you know, if you find me, I'm not dead. Uh, <laughs> Gilbert, may I recommend such a note? <laughs> yeah. So he was actually performing in, uh, he was performing in New, in New York and it happened. He fell and they took him over to, to uh, the doctor's office and his mother who, who worked with him and his wife showed up to say, well, where is he? And they said, oh, sorry. They took him to the funeral home. Uh, and they had removed his brain. Unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. And I was like, but he wasn't dead. And I, I think they sued. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And rightly so. So so they were a little overzealous. Yeah. <laughs> they performed an autopsy on the guy and he wasn't dead. What about this is another one Gilbert and I love, and we forgot the name. The Chinese the Chinese bullet catcher. Oh. Who wasn't really Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> This is the most famous Chung Ling Su. Oh, we're big fans. <laughs> <laughs> no relation to Jack Su. No, no. relation to Papillon Su Su. <laughs> he's, he's, his real name was William Robinson. Of course. And, and there was another Chinese magician with a similar name, and he decided, I will do, I will do a name similar to his. And people will think I'm him, and I will adopt his persona, and I will work. And he became very successful. He was one of the most successful performers in all of vaudeville. Like Gallagher, for- too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And he would speak in mock gibberish Chinese, and he had a phony interpreter who would ask him questions. Oh, Gilbert, you'll like this. The yeah. person that he was ripping off was named Ching Ling Fu. <laughs> Thank you, Bert. Oh, sorry. No, exactly. <laughs> Uh, now, did did he make himself up to look yeah, Chinese? Yes. Yeah, yes. you know, a shaved head and the ponytail and the, uh, the Oriental pony- robe, <laughs> and so he had been doing this the bullet catch for ten for about ten years. It had been done by an, a number of magicians for for about a hundred years prior. Oh, excuse me, Gilbert. His his assistant's name was Sue Seen. <laughs> <laughs> But I think she was she was from Yonkers. She was she was a Chinese. Either. Sorry, Jeff. Go on. It's so, the Mel Blank bit. Yes. Sure. <laughs> so so he had been doing it for about ten years, and it had already been come like it wasn't like the grand finale. It was something he did on occasion. So he had done it, and he had this whole thing where he's going to catch the bullets on a silver tray, and unfortunately, he got. He had two men load. He was so secretive. No one in his show knew how the trick was done. Oh, he was so protective. So they put, you know, gunpowder down one of the barrels, which was a trick barrel and would not shoot. And a phony projectile would come out of the second one. But unfortunately, doing it so many times that the gunpowder, you know, you know, got into the other barrel. And next thing you know. A, a he was a bullet came out. And he was shot dead, and that's when they found out he was not Chung Ling Su, but William Robinson. He spoke the first his first words of English. He goes, "I think I've been shot." That was the thing when he was shot. He went, "I think I've been shot," and the audience went, "He's speaking English." <laughs> <laughs> Nobody cared that he got shot. They said, "Wait a minute, he's not really a Chinaman." <laughs> Get your money back. <laughs> 
<laughs> I love these. I love these magicians. Who was the who was the, the 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 guy whose wife substituted the bullets, real bullets, for wax bullets? Was that Professor Marvo oh, in Argentina? Might have been Arnold Buck. <laughs> we have we have. Or was it the Black Wizard of the West in South Dakota, whose whose wife was angry at him? I think she was the one that swapped out the wax bullets, <laughs> right. real bullets, for the wax bullets. You know, it's, it's amazing. Bert and I were just chatting. The, we the first recorded entry we have of the bullet catch was eighteen twenty, of someone dying during a bullet catch, and the last one is two thousand seven. Oh my god! Nearly for almost two hundred years. No, you would think at some point somebody would wise up and go, "This is not for us." You know, I mean, and people were have been killed by having audience members load the load the bullets. Yeah. One time, someone from the audience actually pulled out a gun and shot the performer. Yeah, so, that was Professor Marvo. He Professor was Marvo. And uh, <laughs> an audience member said, hey, catch this, Professor, and shot him and killed him. And the guy went on trial and was acquitted because he really thought that Professor Marvo would catch the bullet. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> Couldn't they just lock him up for being an asshole? <laughs> <laughs> but our good friend and yours, Gilbert, Penn Gillette, really... Put put this whole thing in perspective on its how morally irresponsible it is to do a trick that puts you in danger. He's and he he really explained it quite well in the book, and we're so thankful that he gave us such a great interview. You know, he, and he talked about people like David Blaine. He said, "I'm going to risk my life for you." He said, "No," and he also t- talked about you know you should have a warning in front of the theater. And he said, that's ridiculous. People know it's just a trick. He goes, when you go to Disneyland, you, you know, if you were going on a roller coaster and getting killed, it wouldn't happen. You yeah. know, well, what's Teller's philosophy? Nothing, nothing more dangerous than sitting in your living room. Absolutely. Yeah. He said and, that yeah. was Houdini's philosophy. Houdini's. And that's a philosophy that Penn and Teller lived even, by this even day. Though Penn I, thinks he's going to die doing a, <laughs> a, a, a stunt on stage. I, I remember Penn and Teller did a bit where Teller is in a water tank. Oh, yeah. And and he starts like get, gasping and like pounding on the glass like he's like drowning and then, you know, works out at the end. And and. Penn said to the audience, he goes, you know what stands out? Not one of you in the audience got up to help him. <laughs> <laughs> but but that is a perfect example of a magic trick that is completely safe. And I shouldn't say that. I should say that's a complete example of something that you think is safe can turn in a second, you know? Of course, the bullet catch is a trick when done correctly, mm-hmm. but the amount of danger that is inherent to that trick. Well, this, the saddest one is is actually Ralph Raff Biala. He was the most famous bullet catcher in Germany. He caught bullets about more than 3,000 times, and he actually did it with steel gloves and steel dentures that he had in his mouth. So he would catch the bullet, in the steel gloves, and it would go into his mouth. Unfortunately, it gave him really bad headaches. And one day he was walking through the Tyrolean mountains and, and got dizzy and fell off a cliff. <laughs> you see, Gilbert, you, feel, you, you, you think you got a hard career. You think, you think going up there and, 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 and is difficult. You, you wouldn't think it would cause bad things like headaches. <laughs> 
catching bullets in your mouth. Will you feel better now when you're doing the chuckle hut on, yeah. on, on a last show on a Sunday? And you think about what these guys had to do. Tell us about the diving bells and the connection to uh, the Three Stooges, something we love to talk about on this show. Because Gilbert was fascinated by this, too. God. That was a that was a vaudeville act. The the the, the six diving bells mm-hmm. were some you know pretty girls who would sit who would stand on diving boards around the side of a, of a of a high of a of a pool, and when the curtains would open, each one would dive into the water. Uh, unfortunately, the, the the diving boards they had were were very touchy, and if you took a wrong step, you'd go flying. And right as the curtains were about to open, one of the diving bells went up in the air. <laughs> came down on her head and was killed. And uh, again, the stage manager ran out and said, everybody's, it's all fine. She's fine. You know, the, the show goes on. Uh, it turned out that the six diving bells were not all girls. Uh, two of them were men. Uh, one of them was Ted Healy and the other was Mo Howard. How about wow. that? How about that? <laughs> when they were teenagers. Wow. The diving bell. Yeah, because it was turned up in one of Mo's memoirs or one of right. Mo's. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. What about the actual death of Ted Healy, which is which is shrouded yes. in mystery? You guys got a theory? Well, you know they say it was um, what the relative of Cubby Broccoli. Yeah, oh, the Cubby Broccoli was the, directly involved. Right, right, right. That's right. Yeah, um, beaten, beaten to death that, supposedly, but it's that that is pretty much the uh, given theory that it it was a uh, result of that. You know, he got in a uh, a fight. He was drunk. And I believe he was in an alley afterwards, um, I think, with Cubby Broccoli, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then what about the death of Alfalfa? It wasn't Alfalfa's last words, you know, where are my drugs? He was shot in a drug deal, I, I, I believe. I think he was shot over a dog. Yeah, like in a he, bar. someone, he borrowed a dog or someone borrowed uh, he, his dog and... Then I think he pulled out a knife and someone shot him. Something like that. Uh, see, he he like didn't that. die on stage. Don't ask me. Yeah. Yeah. That's another <laughs> book. He on stage. That's I can tell you the whole book. story. You know, uh, some, a, a recurring motif, by the way, just in, in uh, not only we're talking about shootings, but you, you, you mentioned before, you mentioned Hackett's gun collection. And this is something Jeff and I were talking about on the phone. What is this obsession with comedians and guns? You, and know, you, you guys went to the Jerry Lewis auction recently. So, in Vegas, we had it, to sit through seventy-five lots, lots of guns. Well, we seventy-five when, different wow. lots of his guns. When Bert and I, we both got the catalog and said, "Oh my God, Jerry Lewis's estate auction catalog!" I figured there's going to be costumes, the Nutty Professor outfit, and all these great items. The first forty pages was seventy-five lots of guns. So we go to the auction. And we had to sit through 75 lots. And lot number 42, a Beretta. Lot 42, a Colt <laughs> 45. Jeez. Yeah. It was just like. Was, I, she, was know, he paranoid? Did he think somebody was after him? He, you know, he had a stalker. Yeah. And he would always say, if the you know if that guy comes here, you know, that fucker, you know, you know, he was very proud of it. You know, I get having two guns or three guns. But I mean, we're talking an arsenal. An arsenal, yeah. 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 And then he he had one gun was engraved. I think it said Jew or Super Jew. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, I will give him credit. He was very proud of his heritage. He had many things. He had desk ornaments that said Super Jew. The Jew stops here. He was very proud of that. What's the what's what what's the Sid Caesar story with the gun, Jeff? So Sid Caesar uh, dies unfortunately, and they're. 
you know, they're cleaning out his closet and they find more cigars, suits, a couple of handguns, you know, a hunting rifle. And then his daughter finds something and says, I don't know what this is. I have to, I better call the Beverly Hills police. It was like a Thompson submarine, uh, submachine gun. You've <laughs> got a Jeez. Thompson submachine gun in I mean, closet. it's amazing what these comedians did. <laughs> What's wrong did. with these guys? You, you so, never know when you might need one of those. <laughs> some, I don't, I forgot who said it and put it in perspective. At the Burt Reynolds estate auction, he had two guns in his collection. Jerry Lewis had 75. 75. <laughs> so what does that tell you about Jerry Lewis? You you worked with Burt Reynolds, Burt, but you you uh, despite the fact that that several of the people around him were always worried that he was going to take a uh, take a swing at at them, <laughs> which was a I guess not an unfounded fear. You you liked him. You got along with him. Oh, Burt Reynolds was 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 terrific. He was a um, the movie we did was called Cloud Nine, mm-hmm. and uh, I wrote it with my partner in time, Brett Hudson from the Hudson Brothers. Oh yeah, well, we had Mark, Mark here. of course. Yeah, uh, Brett and I and Al Ruddy. And Al had won the Oscar for The Godfather. And he was sort of in his autumn years at that time. And uh, Brett had known Al for about 20 years. And um, we got together. Al had, had a, a Showtime uh, special that he was offered to do. And his company and our company got together. And it was called My First Time. It was a series for Showtime where we interviewed 84 women about the first time they had sex and then reenacted it with porn actors. Uh, Al Al Ruddy and his partner kind of <laughs> worked under kind pseud- of show. Worked, worked under <laughs> pseudonyms. Uh, so we did that for Showtime, and then uh, Brett and I would go out uh, to lunch every day at this Chinese restaurant on Pico with Al, and we would talk. And one day Al said, um, "I just went to visit my uh, my son at, at NYU, and he had this poster on the wall of uh, this really sexy woman at the beach. It was Gabrielle Reese." And I said to my son, "I didn't realize that you were uh, into beach volleyball." And he said, no, I'm into Gabrielle Reese. Look at her. Um, so then we kept talking and said, why don't we do a movie about beach volleyball strippers? <laughs> and we said, yeah. So we, we came up with an idea to do a movie where Burt Reynolds played the coach of a team of, uh, uh, of strippers playing beach, vo- beach volleyball. And uh, we actually, Al actually got funding for it. And we hired a director who had just come off a really hot movie. Funky Monkey. <laughs> oh, my God. There you go, Gil. Oh, my God. <laughs> Harry Basil. Harry Basil. Yeah. Wow. And so, you know, Brett and I thought that we had, you know, the next SOB. We had this movie set in Malibu where, you know, Burt Reynolds was playing a, this, this con man who comes up with this idea to, to, start a, uh, to start a beach volleyball team. We really had a, a movie about, beach volleyball strippers but uh we had we had you know quite a cast we had uh gary Busey, uh dl ugly well actually it was it was um burt reynolds dl ugly paul rodriguez angie everhart gabrielle reese and gary Busey came on to do a one-day cameo but gary uh knew some of the people there and he liked the craft service food so much that he showed up every day for the rest of the shoot for the next three weeks <laughs> Like a Godfrey and, move. And, and when Access Hollywood showed up to interview the cast, Gary ran over as if he was the star of the movie and uh, did all the interviews for us. But uh, this, Bert, this Bert seems loved him. like the kind of movie I would have shown on up all night. Yeah, or shown <laughs> up in. Uh, yeah, yeah it, it was good. But but Burt Reynolds was uh, 
was terrific. Uh, every morning, uh, again, Harry, Harry did a great job. He did a great job with, with what we gave him. Uh, there were a lot of dicks swinging around, uh, around the, uh, the outskirts of that movie, and Harry managed to negotiate everything, got everything done on time. But he was a bit afraid of Bert because Al had told him the story that Bert had punched out a director on one of his last movies. So Harry didn't want to get punched. So every morning, Brett Hudson and I would meet with, with Bert in the makeup trailer and go over the script and go over some lines, etc. And the way Bert Reynolds had makeup put on was he would sit and he, would, he had a pair of jeans that he would roll up above his ankles. He had a t-shirt that the, the neck was cut out and the sleeves were cut out. And the makeup lady had an airbrush and sprayed every exposed part of his body with orange paint. <laughs> I can't make this up. And, uh, and then he put on his rose-colored glasses and went out. Yeah. But he was, you know, he I came against well. him. He never, he, never, he never threatened you. Nah, he was he was great. He he worked well with all, all the the young kids. I mean, I had come from tabloid television to the tabloid world. Sure. And I I, I said to him, I I said, you know, you always show up in the National Enquirer, and we've always heard st- stories about you. Do you like the National Enquirer? Do you you know do you cooperate with them or do you hate them? And he said, I fucking hate them. He said, you know, these people called up my parents in the middle of the night to tell them I was dying of AIDS. And he said, one Christmas, uh, the National Enquirer down in Florida had some giant Christmas tree in Lantana, Florida. And Burt Reynolds and a friend of his got a helicopter and dumped half a ton of horse shit on top of the tree. Did you know that, Gilbert? No. That's fun. True story, yeah. But, That's you know, fun. you know, I remember working on some movie where there was going to be a scene. It was in a comedy where Burt Reynolds is in a hospital bed for the bit. And and I heard the word on the set was that one of the tabloids said they were offering a certain amount of money mm-hmm. to anyone who could snap a picture of Burt Reynolds in a hospital bed <laughs> so that they could run the headline, Burt Reynolds dying of AIDS. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. What, 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 what afternoon he invited Brett and I into his trailer at lunchtime. And so we get to the trailer and we open the door and it's, it's dark. And we're like, Oh shit, is he going to hit on us or something? No, we always, we always heard about Burt Reynolds and the tabloids, you know, best friends with, you know, Charles Nelson Riley and Dom DeLuise. You're never, you're never, never sure (laughs) what's going on here, but he was sitting there and he says, come look at this. And there's a documentary on the screen. It was an Errol Morris documentary I think it's called Vernon, Florida. Oh, it's a good movie. Right. And yeah. there's, this, there's this old turkey hunter being interviewed. He's talking in this really deep south, backwoods Florida accent. And Bert is sitting there trying to get the accent down. He was say, he's saying, you know, only Jonathan Winters could do this. He's the only one. I, I really, you know, he was always trying to be a better actor, which was great. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. We got to talk a little bit about Jerry and we'll get, I'm going to save Jerry for last because you've all got your Jerry stories, but let's, <laughs> and Gilbert has his, but I do want to know, um, one, one other thing from the book and we, you guys know, we jump around, uh, we got to talk about Rodale dying on Cavett because we've heard Dick's perspective 
Because he was a health expert. Yes. That's the He was the guru of organic food. Yeah. Organic foods. That was the best part of the story. Well, 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 Dick Dick always said, the gods gave me that. You could not ask for a better guest to die on your show. By the way, it was interesting in your book that he and Marshall Brickman got together and put in the tape one night. Because the the tape's in a vault, right? He won't let anybody see the tape. Yes. Uh, He let us see it. He let you guys see it. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think I can publicly say it. Um, your friend and ours, Robert Bader, uh-huh. who works very Robert. closely with Mr. Cavett, he said to me, if you sell this book, I will let you watch the Rodale episode. And as soon as we ha- I had a contract in my hand, my first phone call was to Bader. Fantastic. And we got to watch it. We... Um, Probably you can literally almost count on one hand the number of people who have seen this episode. And as Dick will tell you, about 20 people a year come up to him and say, the, the expression on your face, and no one has seen it. It's, yeah. Unless yeah, you were in the audience. People think that they night. saw it. It's, it's right. It's, it's, yeah, the episode never aired. Right. Between, Everybody thinks that it did. It between never Dick telling it as recently, uh, you know, earlier this year on Seth Meyers, to the detailed account that Pete Hamill did because he was the guest on the show in the paper, it's one of those things that everyone feels they had seen that episode. Yeah, I didn't know that Hamill was a guest on that show until until I read your book. So yeah. you you guys are among the select few. It's like the select group of people who've seen the day the clown cried footage. <laughs> right, we're in an exclusive club. Right, tell and not a bad movie either. <laughs> but, you know, it's the little subtleties that, you know, people have gotten wrong. Did he actually say this phrase? Right. Did he say this? You know, there's little things we were watching, and I don't know if Bert even caught it the first time. He says a line like, oh, I'll, let me save this since I'm, until, when I, until I come back next time. And, or Cavett says, oh, we'll have you back. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's those little subtleties, which were, which were very are eerie. Right. You know, it's a, I mean, for instance, part of the legend is that when – Pete Hamill was being interviewed and Rodell was next to him and then suddenly Rodell started making a snoring sound which was apparently like the death rattle and the legend has been that that Dick Cavett leaned over and said excuse me Mr. Rodell are we are we boring you Yeah yeah I was going to ask you about that and uh <laughs> that never happened Interesting I mean, when 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 he made the noises some of the people in the audience giggled a bit but Dick Cavett and Pete Hamill knew right away, and the alarm on their faces was like, they're like, holy shit. And uh, immediately, they went into action. There was, there, was, there, was, there was no time for any sort of, uh, you know, bon mots or whatever. That story was told on the very first episode of this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is that said during the course of the interview, Rodale was very concerned about having, like, pre- electric shock therapy for before anybody was doing it to you know to get the energy back into his body and we came across a piece from marshall efron who was the other guest on the show that night and he believes that the um the lights and the microphones were were zapping the electricity out of uh rodale's body and that may have been the cause (laughs) of his death yeah (laughs) all right jeff you're the big jerry defender on facebook and you and i and i (laughs) I've picked bones with you before, and there's no 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 more. Bring it on, bring Jerry, it on, Frank. Jerry Defender than you are, and Gilbert. You know, of course, Gilbert loves to use the line. He was always nice to me. He was he was, as it turns out, nice to both of you. 
Well, I mean, I've seen both. You know, I've been very lucky, as you saw, I promoted the documentary, The Method to the Madness. Mm -hmm. The filmmaker told me, hey, when Jerry goes, I have all the outtakes, you know. So I've seen the great side. You know, when I was doing my Rich Brothers book, you know, we wanted to interview Jerry. He called me up, left a message on my machine, and, you know, fast forward, I'm in his den in his house doing an interview with him. And I've been in his company many times, a sweetheart. Um, I, we have, Bert and I both have friends who've worked on the telethon for 20 years. So that's the great side. But um, so they were doing an event in Las Vegas called the Founders of Las Vegas. <laughs> oh, this is the George, I, I the George Schlatter there. show. I yes. was there. Were you that, there? Yeah. This um, is great. Yeah. I'm trying to get, I'm uh, trying to get a ticket to the event. It's at, I believe, I think it was Caesar's Palace or Flamingo. I'm trying to get, and they say it's sold out. They said, well, all right, we got you a couple of comps. I went with Bader. Um, and then I sit to a woman um, who's sitting next to us. I said, how'd you get in? And said, oh, they were giving away free tickets in the lobby. I said, really? So because George Carlin was on the panel, along with Norm Crosby, Phyllis Diller, Shecky, and Jerry, I got to go backstage. And Jerry walks in, and the room lights up. He's the big, you know. We have to give him credit. I mean, who else had a career of, you know, 75 years, you know, and he walks in, lady, and everybody's laughing and screaming and having a great time. So then the panel takes place, and they're talking about Vegas and performers, and Jerry says this quote, which has been handed down from George Jessel to George Burns to Milton Berle, there's no place for young comedians to be bad. Gilbert, how many times have you heard uh, that? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Shecky Green goes, Jerry, what the hell are you talking about? Bud Friedman has a hundred improvs. My friend Sammy Shore invented the comedy store. What are you talking about, Jerry? He goes, I'm sorry. I, th- I thought I was right. And next thing you know, Jerry excuses himself to go to the bathroom and never comes back. <laughs> He was that offended. Yeah, I was in the audience, and that was a a scary moment because obviously Shecky hates him, uh, along with probably everybody else on the earth that Shecky hates. (laughs) So I saw a, they they never sold this, but when they were trying to sell this, they did an edit of the taping. And they had to cut around it so Jerry never looks like he walked off the set. I mean, I mean, the other side was at the TCA for the uh, Method to the Madness. The um, we had not the documentary had not been um, v- available for the critics, so they only had a few minutes of it. And it was just after he got fired by the telethon, so he he really wasn't in a good mood. Um, I remember him being introduced by um, Chris Albrecht. And he's gives this long intro, and Jerry, in that kind of Burl esque delivery, goes, "Hurry up, Chris! I have to shave again." <laughs> he gets a laugh. He's out there, and someone says, "Jerry, what do you think about reality television, American Idol?" And he goes, "In my day, we didn't say TV; we called it television." And I, Everybody on these shows looks like McDonald rejects these kids today. No one knows who Al Jolson is. I go, "What?" What is he talking about? So you see this side of him. But again, having been in his home backstage at shows, I've had great experiences with him. But, you know, if you tell me a story, I'm not going to deny it. And and Bert spent, you know, a great time with him on current affair. You were at the telethon, too. At one of the telethons. Richard Belzer. 
the bells has yes. a Jerry Lewis tattoo. Uh-huh. He sure does. I have two. <laughs> one, <laughs> one is the familiar telethon logo. The other is, is Hirschfeld's caricature. He's got two Jerry Lewis tattoos, Gilbert. Wow. And now I, I've heard more than a few people, and I mean, maybe that's why Nutty Professor is such a great film. I've heard more than a few people I asked who've described Jerry Lewis as Jekyll and Hyde. Well, it was Sean Levy, and I helped him with the PR for his book, The King of Comedy. He was the first one to make that conclusion. You know, everyone always thought he was doing Dean Martin in that movie. And then he said, no, he's doing Jerry Lewis. You know, yeah. you know, you know, if you look at Jer- Jerry, you know, Jerry Lewis and Jerry Langford, you know, they had the same initials for a reason. Sure, sure, sure. But Bert, you, you, you had a, a also mostly positive experiences of Jerry. I did. Back, back in 1987, I was working for uh, NBC News and a friend of mine was the assistant uh, director on Saturday Night Live. And she had a gig in the summer as the assistant director for the telethon in Las Vegas. So I said, please, can you get me, get me a, a gig as like a production assistant, just some low-level gig so I can be there with Jerry for the entire, I want to stay up all night and stay up the whole time with Jerry for the telethon. <laughs> stay up so with she, Jerry. So she got me the gig. I show up at Caesar's Palace. We go into the, into the trailer where the uh, production offices are. And they, they said, this is Bertie's going to be a production assistant. They go, get over here right away. Jerry just found a big mistake in the rundown. You've got to fix it. Great. What do we have to do? So they gave me the rundown, which is the whole schedule of of the show that gets handed out to everyone. And they sat me down at a typewriter. This is the old days and gave me a bottle of whiteout because Jerry himself looked at the rundown and realized there was a big mistake at the top of every page. So it was my job to take the whiteout and white out the words muscular dystrophy, because what it said at the top was 1987 muscular dystrophy telethon. I had to white out the words muscular dystrophy and type in Jerry Lewis. So it said the 1987 Jerry Lewis telethon. <laughs> and I was, I just was, was, was just so happy to do that. You were happy to do it. Oh, I was crying. But the, the main thing I wanted to know is how real Jerry was. At the, at the end of every telethon, you know, he sings, you'll never walk alone. He blubbers. He puts the, the microphone down on the stool and staggers off. I wanted to see if, once he stepped off that stage, he went, you know, that'll hold the bastards for a while to see if he, if he was the real, the real deal. So I planted myself. I'd been up all night, with Jerry and Sammy Davis. Sammy Davis had, um, it was before he had a hip replacement surgery. He was on two canes. He had Alto on one side holding him up and his mother on the other side. Three o'clock in the morning, there's a drunken crowd in the bleachers. Sammy goes out, throws the canes down and does birth of the blues. And that's where I realized Sammy Davis Jr. was like the greatest performer I'd ever seen. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> back to Jerry. <laughs> so back to Jerry. I'm standing there. He sings, You'll Never Walk Alone. He's crying. He puts the microphone down, walks off stage, and falls into his wife's arms and just weeps. And I was like, that's Ooh. my Jerry. Yeah. Oh. How about that? Right. So to make a little story a bit longer. <laughs> yeah, tell him about the year, phone call. Two years later. I'm working at a current affair and basically you could kind of do whatever stories you wanted at a current affair. So I said, let's let, let me write Jerry Lewis a letter. So I wrote Jerry Lewis a letter and I told him about what happened in 1987, two years earlier. And I said, you know, 
also, you know, I've been a fan my whole life. And on weekends, I lived in the, in the West Village at the time. On weekends, I go to record stores and I find copies of Jerry Lewis Just Sings. That was the 1956 Standards album that he uh-huh. cut. One of the best albums ever made and everyone should have a copy. It's available now. But anyway, so I, I wrote a letter. I said, I've got a copy. I've got this album. I've got about 12 copies and I'd like to give one to you. But what I'd like to do is follow you around during the, during the preparations for and, and through the telethon. About two weeks later, I get a call at the office. Hello, Bert. This is Jerry. Jerry, what, what? Are you kidding? And he goes, I don't even have a copy of Jerry Lewis Just Sings. I'd love to have one. Uh, you're welcome to come to the telethon. You'll have my complete cooperation and the co- complete cooperation of my crew. The only thing I ask is that it not just be a two-minute segment. I said, fuck, Jerry, you're going to get the whole show. If you're going to let us be behind the scenes of the telethon, this is terrific. I go, as a matter of fact, Jerry, this, this is a great forum for you because you can address your critics. My critics? I fuck them! I fuck my critics! <laughs> fuck them! <laughs> fuck them! <laughs> I'll see you next week. <laughs> so we end up spending a week with Jerry Lewis behind the scenes, and he gave us the full Jerry. He, you know, he had a... Uh, he had tantrums, but he couldn't get his Eskimo pies. He did a two-way with Frank Sinatra. He did tap dancing with the old tap dancers. He rode around in a golf cart and came up behind people and honked the horn. Um, did the whole? Did gave us the whole Jerry? It was it was terrific? Fantastic. But the other reason we defend Jerry is I think we just find him funny. I mean, who else had a career that again you know spanned seventy plus years was a success in every medium from vaudeville up until. You know, cable television, you know, writer, performer, director, actor, I mean, singer. I, mean, I think I also, I was born in that sweet spot of Jerry's career in the, in the, I was around in the 60s when I would go to double features at the Norwalk Theater of, you know, Hook, Line, and Sinker and the Family Jewels and the Ladies Man. Uh, you know, at, at that time when, you know, your heroes were Soupy Sales, Alan Sherman, and Jerry Lewis. And uh, you had Jerry Lewis muscle dystrophy carnivals in my driveway. I grew up with a Jerry Lewis uh, cinema in uh, East Meadow. Uh, you, I remember the Jerry Lewis cinema uh, yeah. in East Meadow. Sure. They were a chain of those. Sure, and sure, now, sure. Now, they were going to be, be all family theaters, but they became, people turned them into <laughs> porno cinemas. <laughs> Pretty much. Do any of you have any inside stuff of why they fired him after all those years? Um, you know, there was, I think the year before he was fired, he had a, one, a director named Artie, Artie Forrest. And he said, and you know, you know, Jerry, you know, you know, he would introduce the cameraman, the you know, the uh, cue card guy. If they made a mistake, it was a family, and the camera was following him around. He said, "You know, Artie, our fag director." <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! Yeah. And you know, you know, if you're a Seven Eleven or the McDonald Corp or the Sunland Corporation, you know, you're not going to like that. You know, he was getting a little ornery. You know, and I think sponsors were starting also, to be a little schemish. You and know, also, be- I think if you remember after nine eleven, uh, I think George Clooney and a bunch of stars put on a telethon on HBO and it was on all the networks. Yeah. That I think it ran for two hours and, and probably raised sixty raised million as, dollars as much money as the whole telethon would. I think it sort of became a a thing of the past. They just didn't do it in a classy way. Also, you know, in the telethon, it was as Bert said. You know, it was, it was Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. You know. The later years, it was um, Jack Jones. It was um, 
you know, um, Maureen um, McGovern, you know, so the telethon was losing its luster. So, and so that was part of it. And, and Bert says it was the way it was handled. You know, Jerry was the executive producer. You don't just tell him and say, we're, we're changing it to six hours without telling him. So that was the terrible part. You know, he did raise, as Jerry would say, two billion. And that's with a B, not an M. For Jerry's kids. Speaking of volatile comics. <laughs> either one of you guys have any experience of uh, of pat cooper who turned 90 today or jack carter jeff I'm, um, jeff i'm looking at you speaking of birthdays uh shout out gary lewis is 74 today it's also gary his birthday, lewis. Oh, birthday we have lewis. to have him on the podcast that'll just be uh, depressing <laughs> no, um, you, I didn't have. I had a good experience with Pat Cooper. I met him when he was doing Playboy. Um, play when the Playboy Channel had a show called Comedy After Hours. It was done like a roundtable, like um, Broadway. Danny Rose and mm -hmm. I, I. I told him I had like what Bert said. I had one of your albums. You know, before eBay, if you went into a used record store and found an album, it was a big deal. You know, now you just sit in your pajamas. Mm. But I said, Pat, I have a couple of your albums. And I found him for him, and he was nice. Had lunch with him at the Friars. He was great. We love him. But the, the story I heard about Jack Carter was, you know, Jack Carter had the local had the local show on NBC just before your show of shows. And the network gave all the ammo and all the promotion to Sid Caesar. And they said, you know, you really can't have this guest on. We're saving it for Sid. So he kind of held a grudge, and Jack Carter with a grudge is <laughs> the ugliest thing you ever want to say. <laughs> Nesteroff has great stories about Jack Carter. So oh. they're, at, they're at some party, and Jack is just needling Sid. You know, Sid is like 90 and falling apart at this, not in good health, let's put it that way. And he goes, you know, if it wasn't for you and Max Liebman keep me off the air, I could have been this. And Mel Brooks is, is there, he goes... Jack, you were a big star. Sid was a bigger star. It's 60 years. Let it go. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, Jeff, why, why, in your opinion, did everybody dislike Danny Kaye? Um, I think George Carlin uh, can sum it up best. You know, he, as a kid, mm -hmm. wanted to be the next George uh, Danny Kaye. You know, a performer who could literally do everything. And he went to see him at the Paramount Theater in New York. It's kind of a rainy day. Comes back, goes out the backstage door. He's there with his autograph book and didn't even look at the kid. And he goes, here's a guy giving all his time and energy to UNICEF and wouldn't give me the time of day. Fuck Danny Kay. <laughs> so, and George vowed that, he, that if he became famous, he would never... He would, he would treat his fans in exactly it, the opposite fashion. It's funny. It's like uh, Frank and I have had, we've lost count of the amount of guests who've worked with Danny Kaye and, and all hated him. Bert, Bernie Coppell and Jamie Farr for two. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, it, I think it was Bernie or Jamie would say he would, or her, somebody said, if you got to laugh, he would grab your arm and yep. say, don't, st don't, yeah, don't step on my, I think I heard it here on your show. Um, you know, he's also like Jerry, one of those performers who could do everything. You know, he flew a plane, he performed surgery. He Gourmet was a cook. Right. Yeah. Uh, and Mel Tolkien tells a story, you know, he prepares a gorgeous Chinese meal. He had a walk in, a, in his kitchen before anybody. You know, somebody show, showed up five minutes late. He throws the entire food, you know, down the garbage disposal. You know, 
you know, these guys were just perfectionists and they, they wouldn't, you know, um, settle for second best. And I think they took it out on everybody. And, and another one we've had on the show who everybody hated Joey Bishop. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, Frank, we were saying about the great story, and I, I think Gary Marshall told me this. Yeah, Bill Persky know, told us, too. It's, yeah, right. it's the same you story. Know, in every episode of every sitcom, you always have to play the evil twin, usually in, in yes. season season three, where they run about ideas. And I think they're in a prison, and one of the inmates looks like Joey Barnes. And Joey looks at the script, and he goes... Hey, why does he have more funny lines than I do? <laughs> I either, mean, either of you guys encountered Jessel in your travels? No. no before my time. Just missed well, him. He died in 81. So, yeah. I, I, you know, it, he it, made the book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is, it is yeah. a shame that some of us, Frank, who may not like Jessel, but as someone who collects comedy recordings and has heard him on many Friars roasts, including the uh, Friars events, yep. including the Parky Carcass, he's brilliant. He really did have a way of words. He really was a master, you know. And there's a great clip of him on the Mike Douglas show. He did an, an old-timers vaudeville show with Rudy Valley, Molly Pecan, um, and Jessel and Jessel does hello mama and it's, it's it, he still had it up until the end favor him Gilbert he's a, such a Jessel fan yeah hello mama <laughs> mama it's your, it's your son your son Georgie the one that sends you the checks everybody. oh yeah now you remember hey mama did uh, did you get that parrot I sent you <laughs> you ate the parrot <laughs> But, Mama, that parrot spoke ten languages. Oh, he should have said something. <laughs> and and uh, how's your eyes, sweetheart? Are, they, uh, are you seeing spots before your eyes? I uh, will put your glasses on. Oh, you see the spots more clearly now. <laughs> wow, I thought I had a lot of free time. <laughs> Wow. Before we get out of here, we'll plug the book generously again. Bert, uh, tell us the uh, tell us the Sammy and Frank story. If you can well, tell if you can if you can kind of condense it. Just to condense it, again, we we made um we made friends with Sammy Davis when we were at a current affair. Uh we we sent Maury Povich over to the Albert Hall to interview him for his it was his latest autobiography. I think it was called Why Me. And all Maury had to do was open the book and just read a chapter because the entire book was about sucking and fucking and devil worship. And Maury, Maury would just read, read a, a chapter and just go, Sammy, Sammy, Sammy. And then Sammy would clap his hands and give that great laugh. Um, loved Sammy Davis. When he died, um, I got an invitation to his funeral uh, and to the house afterwards. So um, I promised my, my boss, I said, look, let's get a hidden camera, get me a, sm- a small camera and I'll get a picture of Frank Sinatra over the box looking at his little buddy. And so, great. I go to, I go to, to L.A. First off, it turns out the, the, the funeral is in public and it's being televised at Forest Lawn. And the hidden camera they give me is the size of a boom box. It was like, <laughs> it, was, it was big. And so I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm in like the eighth row. Little Richard is on one side of me. Casey Kasem is on the other. 
and I'm trying to lift the camera to get a shot of the back. I see I see Sinatra's toupee like six rows ahead of me, and I'm trying to lift the camera up to get a shot of Sinatra the back of his head. And Sammy Davis's lawyer catches me and comes over and, and starts yelling at me at the funeral. And Little Richard's going, "You got caught!" Ha! He's laughing. So <laughs> the, the, the service ends. And and Jesse Jackson, I think, was was at the pulpit, and he says, you know, everyone will proceed to the back of of the of the uh, the chapel when it's over, and they Sinatra gets up, and he and his wife go out the front. So, excuse me, I jump up and I grab the boombox hidden camera, and I run up the aisle, and I burst through the doors, and there's Frank Sinatra just getting into this limousine with Barbara, and I lift up the big boombox hidden camera, and I go, Mr. Sinatra, and I'm tackled by four forest lawn security guards <laughs> and I'm on the ground I'm in the dirt and they're all holding me down and Sinatra looks at me and we make eye contact and he looked at me like I was a, a piece of dirt like I was just some <laughs> little speck of shit that he didn't even notice and he gets into the limousine they shut the door the limo goes up the hill around the corner disappears then all the forest lawn guys let me go they wipe the dirt off their hands they let me go so I wound up at Sammy Davis Jr.'s house afterwards, and I th- it was either uh, Liza Minnelli was there, a lot of celebrities were there. I met, it was either Cheetah Rivera or Rita Moreno. I don't remember which one it was. I got them confused. But the lawyer- <laughs> Well, you, you, were, you were grieving. Right. The, the lawyer kept following me around Sammy's house. And I'm, I'm like, I'm trying to get, get a lawyer away from me. So finally, I locked myself in the bathroom, and I go, wait a minute glass eyes and i open up the medicine chest and i started going through the medicine chest <laughs> looking for, for, for a ah! glass eye <laughs> didn't find one and uh, oh, sammy was, was the greatest guy who knows what he wants in life well Ouch. now i have to now i have to wait till one shows up Ouch. on ebay <laughs> <laughs> oh. i said when i started the interview you're both very sick men <laughs> Gilbert, I met Hervé Villachez. You did? At Hard Copy. Too and good. Again, I made the mistake of trying to be a comedian. He was, I guess we were doing an interview with him. I came down in the newsroom and one of the producers had him and he was standing up on, on one of the desks and he's got his leather jacket on, his motorcycle boots and his jeans. And he's just standing there because <laughs> he had, he couldn't breathe the poor guy. You know, that's, he was very, he was very sickly. And I walk over and the producer says, you know, Bert, meet Mr. Villachez, Hervey. Oh, very nice to meet you. And I shake his hand. How do you do? How are you? And um, she says, would you like an autographed 8x10? And I said, no, but I'll take a 4x5. <laughs> <laughs> and he looks at me and just, <clears throat> it, was, it was his version of crickets, his, <laughs> his breathing. I felt bad about that. <laughs> Oh, you feel bad about it, do you? I felt bad about it. Yeah. Which do you it, feel worse yeah. about that, or searching for glass eyes in Sammy's medicine chest? Wow, the glass eyes are fine. Sammy would, wasn't going to need them anymore. It would have been a great memento. And I will find one on eBay. You'll see. <laughs> well, I know I'm going to die at my desk filling out uh, cards for a Ronnie Shell interview. I don't know. About- oh yes. <laughs> All right. Does that count as dying in show business or dying? Yes. Dying in front of an audience. You know, I I met William Shatner. You guys meet William Shatner. I met him backstage at the Behar show, and he was obsessed. He could not stop talking about Dick Sean dying on stage. Yeah. We try to get to Shatner. He's, you know, the busiest man in show business, but, you know. I have an but, autograph from him that says, Frank, just wait. It'll happen. 
<laughs> oh, so That's he's great. he's a man after your uh, your guy's hearts. That's great. yeah. He's, many he's obsessed are. with performers who died on stage. You should reach yeah, out. You to know, Pen Pen Gillette talks about he wants to go out that I way. Just working, he yeah. Well, yeah, Pen figures just uh, statistically he probably will go out that way since the amount of time that he spends on stage. Yeah, but it's interesting. And on our website, this we have. A dozen performers have died on stage since so we far handed in the book. Since this, no, since this year, wild, uh, including two comedians. Today, as a matter of fact, uh, a Chinese mascot <laughs> at an amusement park was dancing, and I guess they're having a heat wave. He dropped dead while dancing. <laughs> God, but he didn't. He didn't make the book because it was only a rehearsal, and he wasn't and, on stage and yet. You guys have standards. Uh, yeah, the book is absolutely. wonderful. Gilbert's Gilbert's going to plug the book. And you guys, any other plugs? Bert, your website is a lot of fun. I found that great article about Richard Deacon and Joe Flynn, right. which I was reading at four in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> that's going to that's gonna be our next book, In Search of Perfecto Tellus. Great scandals. <laughs> you guys come back and we'll do a whole Perfecto Tellus episode. There's we'll so much that. I didn't get to. So I'm Gilbert Gottfried. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And today we've been talking to Jeff Abraham and Bert Kearns, whose new book is called The Show Won't Go On, The Most Shocking, Bizarre, and Historic Deaths of Performers on Stage. A great read. You guys are uh, your, your fellow travelers. We love you. Uh, thanks for this. It's terrific. The book is fun. And I've got a, about 15 cards here I didn't get to, so you'll come back and, you know, we'll talk about Red Buttons and Shecky and Mickey Fred Rooney. Gwynn. <laughs> Grandpa Al. And Grandpa Al and Fred Gwynn and everything else. <laughs> Sid Melton. And Sid Melton. Ah, yes! <laughs> we'll, we'll do another one. Guys, guys, this was a blast. Thanks very much. All right, I'll give you guys my Gene Bayless story next time. <laughs> oh, jeez! Can you do it in like 30 seconds? The only man to ever refuse me an autograph, which I love, because now I have a story. If he had signed the autograph, I wouldn't be talking about it. Tom Leopold ran into Gene Bayless at the Friars. And you know that story. He said, how you doing, Gene? He said, I got a glass tube in my prick. <laughs> <laughs> night, gentlemen. Good night. Good night. We'll do this again. Bye-bye. Thanks for staying up. We love you. That lifts you when you're down The headaches, the heartaches, the backaches, the flops The sheriff who escorts you out of town The opening when your heart beats like a drum The closing when the customers don't come There's no business like show business Word before the show has started That your favorite uncle died at dawn And top of that, your partner I have parted You're broken-hearted, but you go on There's no people like show people They smile when they are low Even with a turkey that you know will fold You may be stranded out in the cold Still, you wouldn't change it for 
Gilbert Gottfried's amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santapadre with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to John Fodiatis, John Murray, and Paul Rayburn 